0: Welcome to the 54th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 19, Section 14. This Reformation Audio Resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which, we pray, draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. John 14.6 Section 14 of Penitence The next place they give to penitence, of which they discourse so confusedly and unmethodically that consciences cannot derive anything certain or solid from their doctrine. In another place, see Book 3, Chapter 3, and 4. We have explained at length, first, what the scriptures teach concerning repentance, and, secondly, what these men teach concerning it. All we have now to advert to is the grounds of that opinion of it as a sacrament which has long prevailed in schools and churches. First, however, I will speak briefly of the rite of the early church, which those men have used as a pretext for establishing their fiction. By the order observed in public repentance, Those who had performed the satisfactions imposed upon them were reconciled by the formal laying on of hands. This was the symbol of absolution by which the sinner himself regained his confidence of pardon before God, and the church was admonished to lay aside the remembrance of the offense and kindly receive him into favor. This, Cyprian often terms, to give peace. In order that the act might have more weight and estimation with the people, it was appointed that the authority of the bishop should always be interposed, Hence the decree of the Second Council of Carthage, quote, No presbyter may publicly at mass reconcile a penitent, unquote. And another at the Council of Orozica, quote, Let those who are departing this life at the time of penitence be admitted to communion without the reconciliatory laying on of hands. If they recover from the disease, let them stand in the order of penitence, and after they have fulfilled their time, receive the reconciliatory laying on of hands from the bishop, unquote. Again, in the Third Council of Carthage, quote, A presbyter may not reconcile a penitent without the authority of the bishop, unquote. The object of all these enactments was to prevent the strictness which they wished to be observed in that matter from being lost by excessive laxity. Accordingly, they wished cognizance to be taken by the bishop, who, it was probable, would be more circumspect in examining, although Cyprian somewhere says that not the bishop only laid hands, but also the whole clergy. For he thus speaks, quote, they do penitence for a proper time. Next they come to communion and receive the rite of communion by the laying on of the hands of the bishop and the clergy. And afterwards, in process of time, the matter came to this that they use the ceremony in private absolutions also without public penitence. Hence the distinction in Gratian between public and a private reconciliation. I consider the ancient observance of which Cyprian speaks, to have been holy and salutary to the Church, and I could wish it restored in the present day. The more modern form, though I dare not disapprove, or at least strongly condemn, I deem to be less necessary. Be this as it may, we see that the laying on of hands in penitence was a ceremony ordained by men, not by God, and is to be ranked among indifferent things and external exercises which indeed are not to be despised but occupy an inferior place to those which have been recommended to us by the word of the Lord. Section 15 The Romanists and schoolmen, whose want it is to corrupt all things by erroneous interpretation, anxiously labor to find a sacrament here, and it cannot seem wonderful, for they seek a thing where it is not. At best they leave the matter involved, undecided, uncertain, confused, and confounded by the variety of opinions. Accordingly they say, either that external penitence is a sacrament, And if so, ought to be regarded as a sign of internal penitence, i.e., contrition of heart, which will be the matter of the sacrament, or that both together make a sacrament, not two, but one complete, but that the external is the sacrament merely, the internal, the matter, and the sacrament, whereas the forgiveness of sins is the matter only, and not the sacrament. Let those who remember the definition of a sacrament which we have given above, test by it that which they say is a sacrament and it will be found that it is not an external ceremony appointed by God for the confirmation of our faith. But if they allege that my definition is not a law which they are necessarily bound to obey, let them hear Augustine whom they pretend to regard as a saint, Quote, visible sacraments were instituted for the sake of carnal men, that by the latter of sacraments they may be conveyed from those things which are seen by the eye to those which are perceived by the understanding, Unquote. Do they themselves see, or can they show to others, anything like this and that which they call the sacrament of penance? In another passage he says, quote, It is called the sacrament, because in it one thing is seen, another thing is understood. What is seen has bodily appearance. What is understood has spiritual fruit, Unquote. These things in no way apply to the sacrament of penance as they feign it. There, there is no bodily form to represent a spiritual fruit. Section 16 and, to dispatch these beasts in their own arena, if any sacrament is sought here, would it not have been much more plausible to maintain that the absolution of the priest is a sacrament than penitence either external or internal? For it might obviously have been said that it is a ceremony to confirm our faith in the forgiveness of sins, and that it has the promise of the keys as they describe them, Quote, Whatsoever ye shall bind or loose on earth shall be bound or loosed in heaven, Unquote. But someone will object that to most of those who are absolved by priests, nothing of the kind is given by absolution. Whereas according to their dogma, the sacraments of the new dispensation ought to effect what they figure. This is ridiculous, as in the Eucharist they make out a twofold eating, a sacramental which is common to the good and bad alike, and a spiritual which is proper only to the good. Why should they not also pretend that absolution is given in two ways? and yet I have never been able to understand what they meant by their dogma, how much it is at variance with the truth of God we showed when we formally discussed that subject. Here I only wish to show that no scruple should prevent them from giving the name of a sacrament to the absolution of the priest, for they might have answered by the mouth of Augustine that there is a sanctification without a visible sacrament, and a visible sacrament without internal sanctification, again, that in the elect alone sacraments effect what they figure. Again, that some put on Christ so far as the receiving of the sacrament, and others so far as sanctification, that the former is done equally by the good and the bad, the latter by the good only. Surely they were more deluded than children, and blind in the full light of the sun, when they toiled with so much difficulty, and perceived not a matter so plain and obvious to every man. Section 17 Lest they become elated, however whatever be the part in which they place the sacrament, I deny that it can justly be regarded as a sacrament, first, because there exists not to this effect any special promise of God, which is the only ground of the sacrament, and secondly, because whatever ceremony is here used is a mere invention of man, whereas, as has already been shown, the ceremonies of sacraments can only be appointed by God. Their fiction of the sacrament of penance, therefore, was falsehood and imposture. This fictitious sacrament they adorned with a befitting eulogium, that it was the second plank in the case of shipwreck, because if any one had by sin injured the garment of innocence received in baptism, he might repair it by penitence. This was a saying of Jerome. Let it be whose it may, as it is plainly impious, it cannot be excused if understood in this sense as if baptism were effaced by sin, and were not rather to be recalled to the mind of the sinner whenever he thinks of the forgiveness of sins, that he may thereby recollect himself, regain courage, and be confirmed in the belief that he shall obtain the forgiveness of sins which was promised him in baptism. While Jerome said harshly and improperly these, that baptism which is fallen from by those who deserve to be excommunicated from the church is repaired by penitence, these were the expositors rest to their own impiety. You will speak most correctly, therefore, if you call baptism the sacrament of penitence, saying it is given to those who aim at repentance to confirm their faith and seal their confidence. But lest you should think this our invention, it appears that besides being conformable to the words of Scripture, it was generally regarded in the early church as an indubitable axiom. For in the chart treatise on faith addressed to Peter and bearing the name of Augustine, it is called the sacrament of faith and repentance but why have recourse to doubtful writings as if anything can be required more distinct than the statement of the evangelist that John preached quote, the baptism of repentance for a remission of sins unquote. Mark 1 verse 4 and Luke 3 verse 3 Section 18 of Extreme Unction, so called The third fictitious sacrament is Extreme Unction, which is performed only by a priest and as they express it, in extremus with oil consecrated by the bishop and with this form of words, quote, by this holy unction and his most tender mercy may God forgive you whatever sin you have committed by the eye, the ear, the smell, the touch, the taste, unquote. They pretend that there are two virtues in it, the forgiveness of sins and relief of bodily disease, if so expedient, if not expedient, the salvation of the soul. For they say that the institution was set down by James, whose words are, quote, is any sick among you? Let him send for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Unquote. James 5, verse 14. The same account is here to be given of this as we lately gave of the laying on of hands. In other words, it is mere hypocritical stage play, by which, without reason or result, they would resemble the apostles. Mark relates that the apostles on their first mission agreeably to the command which they received of the Lord, raised the dead, cast out devils, cleansed lepers, healed the sick, and in healing used oil. He says they, quote, anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them, unquote. Mark 6, verse 13. To this James referred when he ordered the presbyters of the church to be called to anoint the sick. That no deeper mystery lay under this ceremony will easily be perceived by those who consider how great liberty both our Lord and His apostles used in those external things. Our Lord went about to give sight to the blind man, spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. Some He cured by touch, others by word. In like manner, the apostles cured some diseases by word only, others by touch, others by anointing. But it is probable that neither this anointing nor any of the other things were used at random. I admit this, not, however, that they were instruments of the cure, but only symbols to remind the ignorant once this great virtue proceeded, and prevent them from ascribing the praise to the Apostles. To designate the Holy Spirit and His gifts by oil is trite and common. Psalm 45, verse 8 But the gift of healing disappeared with the other miraculous powers which the Lord was pleased to give for a time, that it might render the new preaching of the gospel forever wonderful. Therefore even were we to grant that anointing was a sacrament of those powers which were then administered by the hands of the Apostles, it pertains not to us, to whom no such powers have been committed. Section 19 And what better reason have they for making a sacrament of this unction, than of any of the other symbols which are mentioned in Scripture? Why do they not dedicate some pool of Siloam, into which at certain seasons the sick may plunge themselves? That, they say, were done in vain. Certainly not more in vain than unction. Why do they not lay themselves on the dead, saying that Paul, in raising up the dead youth, lay upon him? Why is not clay made of dust and spittle a sacrament? The other cases were special, but this is commanded by James. In other words, James spake agreeably to the time when the church still enjoyed this blessing from God. They affirm, indeed, that there is still the same virtue in their unction, which we experience differently. As no men now wonder that they have with so much confidence deluded souls, which they knew to be stupid and blind because deprived of the word of God that is of his light and life, saying they blush not to attempt to deceive the bodily perceptions of those who are alive and have all their senses about them. They make themselves ridiculous, therefore, by pretending that they are endued with the gift of healing. The Lord doubtless is present with his people in all ages and cures their sicknesses as often as there is need, not less than formerly and yet he does not exert those manifest powers nor dispense miracles by the hands of apostles, because that gift was temporary, and owing in some measure to the ingratitude of men, immediately ceased. Section 20 Wherefore, as the apostles not without cause, openly declared by the symbol of oil, that the gift of healing committed to them was not their own but the power of the Holy Spirit, so on the other hand these men insult the Holy Spirit by making his power consist, and they fill the oil of no efficacy it is just as if one were to say that all oil is the power of the holy spirit because it is called by that name in scripture and that every dove is the holy spirit because he appeared in that form let them see to this it is sufficient for us that we perceive with absolute certainty that their unction is no sacrament as it is neither a ceremony appointed by god nor has any promise For when we require in a sacrament these two things, that it be a ceremony appointed by God, and have a promise from God, we at the same time demand that that ceremony be delivered to us, and that that promise have reference to us. No man contends that circumcision is now a sacrament of the Christian Church, although it was both an ordinance of God, and had his promise annexed to it because it was neither commanded to us, nor was the promise annexed to it given us on the same condition. The promise of which they vaunt so much in unction as we have clearly demonstrated, and they themselves show by experience, has not been given to us. The ceremony behoved to be used only by those who have been endued with the gift of healing, not by those murderers who do more by slaying and butchering than by curing. Section 21 Even were it granted that this precept of unction, which has nothing to do with the present age, were perfectly adapted to it, they will not even thus have advanced much in support of their unction with which they have hitherto besmeared us. James would have all the sick to be anointed. These men besmear with their oil not the sick, but half-dead carcasses, when life is quivering on the lips or, as they say, in extremis. If they have a present cure in their sacrament, with which they can either alleviate the bitterness of disease, or at least give some solace to the soul, they are cruel and never curing in time. James would have the sick man to be anointed by the elders of the church. They admit no anointer but a priestly. When they interpret the elders of James to be priests and allege that the plural number is used for honor, the thing is absurd, as if the church had at that time abounded with swarms of priests so that they could sit out in long procession during a dish of sacred oil. James, in ordering simply that the sick be anointed, seems to me to mean no other anointing than that of common oil, nor is any other mentioned in the narrative of Mark. These men deign not to use any oil but that which has been consecrated by a bishop, that is warmed with much breath, charmed by much cluttering, and saluted nine times on bended knee, thrice hail, holy oil, thrice hail, holy chrism, thrice hail, holy balsam, from whom did they derive these exorcisms. James says that when the sick man shall have been anointed with oil, and prayer shall have been made over him... If he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. These, that his guilt being forgiven, he shall obtain a mitigation of the punishment, not meaning that sins are effaced by oil, but that the prayers by which believers committed their afflicted brother to God would not be in vain. These men are impiously false in saying that sins are forgiven by their sacred, that is, abominable, unction. See how little they gain, even when they are allowed to abuse the passage of James as they list and to save us the trouble of a laborious proof, their own annals relieve us from all difficulty, for they relate that Pope Innocent, who presided over the Church of Rome in the Age of Augustine, ordained that not elders only, but all Christians, should use oil and anointing in their own necessity, or in that of their friends. Our authority for this is Sigebert in his Chronicles. SECTION 22 OF Ecclesiastical ORDERS the fourth place in their catalogue is held by the sacrament of orders one so prolific as to beget of itself seven lesser sacraments it is very ridiculous that after affirming that there are seven sacraments when they begin to count they make out thirteen it cannot be alleged that they are one sacrament because they all tend to one priesthood and are a kind of steps to the same thing for while it is certain that the ceremonies in each are different and they themselves say that the graces are different, no man can doubt that if their dogmas are admitted, they ought to be called seven sacraments. And why debate it as a doubtful matter when they themselves plainly and distinctly declare that they are seven? First, then, we shall glance at them in passing and show to how many absurdities they introduce to us when they would recommend their orders to us as sacraments. And secondly, we shall see whether the ceremony which churches use in ordaining ministers ought at all to be called a sacrament. They make seven ecclesiastical orders, or degrees, which they distinguish by the title of a sacrament. These are doorkeepers, readers, exorcists, acolytes, subdeacons, deacons, and priests. And they say that they are seven because of the seven kinds of graces of the Holy Spirit with which those who are promoted to them ought to be endued. This grace is increased and more liberally accumulated on promotion the near number has been consecrated by a perversion of scripture, because they think they read in Isaiah that there are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, whereas truly not more than six are mentioned by Isaiah, who, however, meant not to include all in that passage, for in other passages are mentioned the spirit of life, of sanctification, of the adoption of sons, as well as there, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord." Although others who are more acute make not seven orders, but nine in imitation, as they say of the church, triumphant, but among these also there is a contest, because some insist that the clerical tonsure is the first order of all, and the episcopate the last, while others, excluding the tonsure, class the office of archbishop among the orders. Isiodorus distinguishes differently, for he makes psalmists and readers different to the former he gives the charge of chanting, to the latter that of reading the scriptures for the instruction of the common people, and this distinction is observed by the canons. In this great variety what would they have us to follow or to avoid? Shall we say that there are seven orders? So the master of the school teaches, but the most illuminated doctors determine otherwise. On the other hand, they are at variance among themselves. Besides, the most sacred canons call us in a different direction. Such indeed is the concord of man when they discuss divine things apart from the word of God. Section 23 But the crowning folly of all is, that in each of these they make Christ their colleague. First they say he performed the office of doorkeeper when, with a whip of small cords, he drove the buyers and sellers from the temple. He intimates that he is a doorkeeper when he says, quote, I am the door, unquote. He assumed the office of reader when he read Isaiah in the synagogue. He performed the office of exorcist when, touching the tongue and ears of the deaf and dumb man with spittle, he restored his hearing. He declared that he was an acolyte by the words, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. He performed the office of subdeacon when, girding himself with a towel, he washed the feet of his disciples. He acted the part of a deacon when he distributed his body and blood in the supper. He performed the part of a priest when, on the cross, he offered himself in sacrifice to the Father. As these things cannot be heard without laughter, I wonder how they could have been written without laughter, if, indeed, they were men who wrote them. But their most notable subtlety is that in which they speculate on the name of Acolyte, calling him Zerophorarius, a magical term, I presume, one certainly unknown to all nations and tongues. Greek word, Alpha, Kappa, Omicron, Lambda, Omicron, Upsilon, Theta, Omicron, Sigma, Apaluthos, in Greek meaning simply, attendant. Were I to stop and seriously refute these things, I might myself justly be laughed at. So frivolous are they and ludicrous. Section 24 Still, lest they should be able to impose on silly women, their vanity must be exposed in passing. With great pomp and solemnity, they elect their readers, psalmists, doorkeepers, acolytes, to perform those services which they give in charge either to boys, or at least to those whom they call laics who, for the most part, lights the tapers, who pours wine and water from the pitcher, but a boy, or some mean person among legs, who gains his bread by so doing, do not the same persons chant, do they not open and shut the doors of the churches? Who ever saw in their churches either an acolyte or doorkeeper performing this office, nay, when he who as a boy performed the office of acolyte is admitted to the order of acolyte, he ceases to be the very thing he begins to be called, so that they seem professedly they wish to cast away the office when they assume the title. See, why they hold it necessary to be consecrated by sacraments and to receive the Holy Spirit, it is just to do nothing. If they pretend that this is the defect of the times because they neglect and abandon their offices, let them at the same time confess that there is not in the church in the present day any use or benefit of these sacred orders which they wondrously extol, and that their whole church is full of anathema. Since the tapers and flagons, which none are worthy to touch but those who have been consecrated acolytes, she allows to be handled by boys and profane persons. Since her chants, which ought to be heard only from consecrated lips, she delegates to children. And to what end, pray, do they consecrate exorcists? I hear the Jews had their exorcists. but I see they were so called from the exorcisms which they practiced. Acts 19 verse 13 who ever heard of those fictitious exorcists having given one specimen of their profession? It is pretended that power has been given them to lay their hands on enugrements, catacombs, and demoniacs, but they cannot persuade demons that they are endued with such power, not only because demons do not submit to their orders, but even command themselves. Scarcely will you find one in ten who is not possessed by a wicked spirit. All then which they battle about their paltry orders is a compound of ignorant and stupid falsehoods of the ancient acolytes, doorkeepers, and greeters, we have spoken when explaining the government of the church. All that we here proposed was to combat that novel invention of a sevenfold sacrament in ecclesiastical orders of which we nowhere read except among silly, raving sarbonists and canonists. Section 25. Let us now attend to the ceremonies which they employ. And first, all whom they enroll among their militia, they initiate into the clerical status by a common symbol. They shave them on the top of the head, that the crown may denote regal honor, because clergy ought to be kings in governing themselves and others. Peter thus speaks of them: ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Unquote. First Peter 2: verse 9. But it was sacrilege in them to arrogate to themselves alone what is given to the whole church, and to proudly to glory in a title of which they had robbed the faithful. Peter addresses the whole church these men rested to a few shaven crowns, as if it had been said to them alone, Be ye holy as if they alone had been purchased by the blood of Christ, as if they alone had been made by Christ, kings and priests unto God. Then they assign other reasons. The top of the head is bared, that their minds may be shown to be free with unveiled face to behold the glory of God, or that they may be taught to cut off the vices of the eye and the lip or the shaving of the heads, the laying aside of temporal things, while the circumference of the crown is the remnants of good which are retained for our support. Everything is in figure because, forsooth, the veil of the temple is not yet rent. Accordingly persuaded that they have excellently performed their part, because they have figured such things by their crown, they perform none of them in reality. How long will they delude us with such masks and impostures? the clergy by shaving off some hair intimate that they have cast away abundance of temporal good that they contemplate the glory of God that they have mortified concupiscence of the ear and eye that no class of man is more rapacious more stupid more obedient why do they not rather exhibit true sanctity than give a hypocritical semblance of it in false and lying signs Section twenty-six. moreover when they say that the clerical crown has its origin and nature from the Nazarenes what else do they say than that their mysteries are derived from Jewish ceremonies, or rather are mere Judaism? When they add to Priscilla, Aquila, and Paul himself, after they had taken a vow, shaved their head that they might be purified, they betray their gross ignorance. For we nowhere read this of Priscilla, while with regard to Aquila it is uncertain, since that torture may refer equally well to Paul as to Aquila. Acts 18, verse 18 but not to leave them in possession of what they ask of these. If they have an example in Paul, it is to be observed the more simple that Paul never shaved his head for any sanctification, but only in subservience to the weakness of brethren. Vows of this kind I am accustomed to call vows of charity, not of piety. In other words, vows not undertaken for divine worship, but only in deference to the infirmity of the weak, as he himself says, that to the Jews he became a Jew. First Corinthians 9 verse 20 this therefore he did, and that once, and for a short time, that he might accommodate himself for a little to the Jews. When these men would, for no end, imitate the purifications of the Nazarenes, Numbers 6, verse 18, what else do they than set up a new, while they improperly affect, to rival the ancient Judaism? In the same spirit the the epistle was composed, which enjoins the clergy after the apostle not to nourish their hair, but to shave it all round as if the apostle in showing what is comely for all men had been solicitous for the spherical tonsure of the clergy and let my readers consider what kind of force or dignity there can be in the subsequent mysteries to which this is the introduction section 27 once the clerical tonsure had its origin is abundantly clear from augustine alone while in that age none wore long hair but the effeminate and those who affected unmanly beauty and elegance it was thought to be a bad example to allow the clergy to do so they were therefore enjoined either to cut or shave their hair, that they might not have the appearance of effeminate indulgence. And so common was the practice that some monks do appear more sanctimonious than others by a notable difference in dress, that their locks hang loose. But when hair returned to use in some nations which had always worn long hair, as France, Germany, and England, embraced Christianity, it is probable that the clergy everywhere shaved the head, that they might not seem to affect ornament. At length, in a more corrupt age, when all ancient customs were either changed or had degenerated into superstition, saying no reason for the clerical torture, they had retained nothing but a foolish imitation, they betook themselves to mystery, and now superstitiously obtruded upon us in support of their sacrament. The doorkeepers, on consecration, received the keys of the church, by which it is understood that the custody of it is committed to them. The readers receive the Holy Bible, the exorcists, Forms of exorcism which they use over the possessed and catechumens, the acolytes, tapers, and the flagon. Such are the ceremonies which, it would seem, possess so much secret virtue that they cannot only be signs and badges, but even causes of invisible grace. For this, according to their definition, they demand, when they would have them to be classed among sacraments. But to dispatch the matter in a few words, I say that it is absurd for schools and canons to make sacraments of those minor orders, since, even by the confession of those who do so, they were unknown to the primitive church, and were devised many ages after. That sacraments as containing a divine promise ought not to be appointed either by angels or men, but by God only, to whom alone it belongs to give the promise. Section 28 There remain the three orders which they call major. Of these, what they call the subdeconate, was transferred to this class after the crowd of minor began to be prolific, but as they think they have authority for these from the word of God, they honor them specially with the name of holy orders. Let us see how they rest the ordinances of God to their own ends. We begin with the order of Presbyter, or priest. To these two names they give one meaning, understanding by them those to whom, as they say, it pertains to offer the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood on the altar, to frame pray prayers, and bless the gifts of God. Hence, at ordination, they receive the patina with the host as symbols of the power conferred upon them of offering sacrifices to appease God, and their hands are anointed, this symbol being intended to teach that they have received the power of consecrating, but of the ceremonies afterwards. Of the thing itself I say that it is so far from having as they pretend one particle of support from the word of God, that they could not more wickedly corrupt the order which he has appointed, and first it ought to be held as confessed. This we maintained when treating of the papal mass, that all are injurious to Christ who call themselves priests, in the sense of offering expiatory victims. He was constituted and consecrated priest by the Father with an oath after the order of Melchizedek. Without end and without successor. Psalm 110, verse 4, Hebrews 5, verse 6, and 7, verse 3. He once offered a victim of eternal expiation and reconciliation, and now also, having entered the sanctuary of heaven, he intercedes for us. In him we all are priests, but to offer praise and thanksgiving, in fine, ourselves and all that is ours to God. It was peculiar to him alone to appease God and expiate sins by his oblation. these men usurp it to themselves what follows, but that they have an impious and sacrilegious priesthood. It is certainly wicked over much to dare to distinguish it with the title of sacrament. In regard to the true office of presbyter which was recommended to us by the lips of Christ, I willingly give it that place. For in it there is a ceremony which first is taken from the scriptures and secondly is declared by Paul to be not empty or superfluous but to be a faithful symbol of spiritual grace. 1 Timothy 4 verse 14 my reason for not giving a place to the third is, because it is not ordinary or common to all believers, but is a special right for a certain function. But while this honor is attributed to the Christian ministry, popish priests may not put themselves upon it. Christ ordered dispensers of his gospel and his sacred mysteries to be ordained, not sacrificers to be inaugurated, and his command was to preach the gospel and feed the flock, not to immolate victims. He promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not to make expiation for sins, but duly to undertake and maintain the government of the Church. Matthew 28, verse 19, Mark 16, verse 15, and John 21, verse 15. Section 29 With reality, the ceremonies perfectly agree. When our Lord commissioned the apostles to preach the gospel, He breathed upon them. John 20, verse 22 By this symbol He represented the gift of the Holy Spirit which He bestowed upon them. This breathing these worthy men have retained, and as they were bringing the Holy Spirit from their throat, mutter over their priestlings, quote, receive the Holy Spirit, unquote. Accordingly, they omit nothing which they do not preposterously mimic. I say not in the manner of players, who have art and meaning in their gestures, but like apes who imitate at random without selection. We observe, say they, the example of the Lord. But the Lord did many things which he did not intend to be examples to us. Our Lord said to His disciples, Quote, Receive the Holy Spirit. Unquote. John 20, verse 22. He said also to Lazarus, Quote, Lazarus, come forth. Unquote. John 11, verse 43. He said to the paralytic, Quote, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Unquote. John 5, verse 8. Why do they not say the same to all the dead and paralytic? He gave a specimen of His divine power when in breathing on the apostles, He filled them with the gift of the Holy Spirit. If they attempt to do the same, they rival God, and do all but challenge Him to the contest. But they are very far from producing the effect and only mock Christ by that absurd gesture. Such indeed is the effrontery of some that they dare to assert that the Holy Spirit is conferred by them. But what truth there is in this we learn from experience which cries aloud that all who are consecrated priests, of horses become asses and of fools madmen. And yet it is not here that I am contending against them. I am only condemning the ceremony itself, which ought not to be drawn into a precedent, since it was used as the special symbol of a miracle so far as it from furnishing them with an example for imitation. Section 30 From whom pray did they receive their unction? They answer that they received it from the sons of Aaron, from whom also their order derived its origin. Thus they constantly choose to defend themselves by perverse examples rather than confess that any of their rash practices is of their own devising. Meanwhile they observe not that in professing to be the successors of the sons of Aaron, they are injurious to the priesthood of Christ, which alone was adumbrated and typified by all ancient priesthoods. In him, therefore, they were all concluded and completed. In him they ceased, as we have repeatedly said, and as the epistle to the Hebrews, unaided by any gloss, declares... But if they are so much delighted with mosaic ceremonies, why do they not hurry oxen, calves, and lambs to their sacrifices? They have indeed a great part of the ancient tabernacle and of the whole Jewish worship. The only thing wanted to their religion is that they do not sacrifice oxen and calves. Who sees not that this practice of unction is much more pernicious than circumcision, especially when to it is added superstition and a pharisaical opinion of the merit of the work? The Jews place their confidence of justification in circumcision. These men look for spiritual gifts and unction. Therefore, in desiring to be rivals of the Levites, they become apostates from Christ and discard themselves from the pastoral office. Section 31 It is, if you please, the sacred oil which impresses an indelible character, as if oil could not be washed away by sand and salt, or, if it sticks the closer, with soap. But what character is spiritual? What has oil to do with the soul? Have they forgotten what they quote from Augustine, that if the word be withdrawn from the water, there will be nothing but water, but that it is only to the word, that it is sacrament? What word can they show in their oil? Is it because Moses was commanded to anoint the sons of Aaron? Exodus 30, verse 30, But he there receives command concerning the tunic, the ephod, the breastplate, the mitre, the crown of holiness with which Aaron was to be adorned, and concerning the tunic's belts and mitres which his sons were to wear. He receives command about sacrificing the calf, burning its fat, about cutting and burning rams, about sanctifying ear-rings and vestments with the blood of one of the rams, and innumerable other observances. Having passed over all these, I wonder why the unction of oil alone pleases them. If they delight in being sprinkled, why are they sprinkled with oil rather than with blood? They are attempting, forsooth, an ingenious device." They are trying by a kind of patchwork to make one religion out of Christianity, Judaism, and paganism. Their unction, therefore, is without savor. In one salt, that is, the word of God. There remains the laying on of hands, which, though I admit it to be a sacrament in true and legitimate ordination, I do not deny to have any such place in this fable, where they neither obey the command of Christ, nor look to the end to which the promise ought to lead us. If they would not have the sign denied them, they must adapt it to the reality to which it is dedicated section thirty-two as to the order of the diaconate i would raise no dispute if the office which existed under the apostles and the pure church were restored to its integrity but what resemblance to it do we see in their fictitious deacons i speak not of the men lest they should complain that i am unjustly judging their doctrine by the vices of those who profess it but i contend that those whom their doctrine declares to us derive no countenance from those deacons whom the apostolic church appointed they say that it belongs to their deacons to assist the priests, and to minister at all the things which are done in the sacraments, as in baptism, in chrism, the patina, and in chalice, to bring the offerings and lay them on the altar, to prepare and dress the table of the Lord, to carry the cross, announce, and read out the gospel and epistle to the people. Is there here one word about the true office of deacon? Let us now attend to the appointment. The bishop alone lays hands on the deacon who is ordained. He places the prayer book and stole upon his left shoulder that he may understand that he has received the easy yoke of the Lord in order that he may subject to the fear of the Lord everything pertaining to the left side. He gives him a text of the gospel to remind him that he is its herald. What have these things to do with deacons? But they act just as if one were to say he was ordaining apostles when he was only appointing persons to kindle the incense, clean the images, sweep the churches, set traps for mice, and put out dogs. Who can allow this class of men to be called apostles, and to be compared with the very apostles of Christ. After this, let them not pretend that those whom they appoint mere stage play are beacons. Nay, they even declare by the very name what the nature of the office is, for they call them Levites and wish to trace their nature and origin to the sons of Levi. As far as I am concerned, they are welcome, provided they do not afterwards deck themselves in borrowed feathers. Section 33 what use is there in speaking of subdeacons? Or, whereas, in fact, they anciently had the charge of the poor, they attribute to them some kind of nugatory function, as carrying the chalice and patna, the pitcher with water, and the napkin to the altar, pouring out water for the hands, etc. Then, by the offerings which they are said to receive and bring in, they mean those which they swallow up as if they had been destined to anathema. There is an admirable correspondence between the office and the mode of inducting to it. These receiving from the bishop the patina and chalice, and from the archdeacon the pitcher with water, the manual and trumpery of this kind, they call upon us to admit that the Holy Spirit is included in these frivolities. What pious man can be induced to grant this, but to have done upon once, we may conclude the same of this as of the others, and there is no need to repeat at length what has been explained above. To the modest and docile as such I have undertaken to instruct, it will be enough that there is no sacrament of God, Unless where a ceremony is shown annexed to a promise, or rather where a promise is seen in a ceremony. Here there is not one syllable of a certain promise, and it is vain therefore to seek for a ceremony to confirm the promise. On the other hand, we read of no ceremony appointed by God in regard to those usages which they employ, and therefore there can be no sacrament of marriage. The last of all is marriage, which, while all admitted to be an institution of God, no man ever saw it be a sacrament until the time of Gregory, and would it ever have occurred to the mind of any sober man. It is a good and holy ordinance of God, and agriculture, architecture, shoemaking, and shaving are lawful ordinances of God, but they are not sacraments, for in a sacrament the thing required is not only that it be a work of God, but that it be an external ceremony appointed by God to confirm a promise that there is nothing of the kind in marriage even children can judge. But it is a sign, they say, of a sacred thing, that is, of the spiritual union of Christ with the church. If by the term sign they understand a symbol set before us by God to assure us of our faith, they wander widely from the mark. If they mean merely a sign because it has been employed as a similitude, I will show how acutely they reason. Paul says, quote, One star differeth from another star in glory so also is the resurrection of the dead unquote first Corinthians 15 verse 41 and 42 here is one sacrament Christ says quote, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed unquote Matthew 13 verse 31 here is another sacrament again quote the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven unquote Matthew 13 verse 33 here is a third sacrament Isaiah says quote, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd unquote Isaiah 40, verse 11. Here is a fourth sacrament. In another passage he says, The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. Isaiah 42, verse 13. Here is a fifth sacrament. And where will be the end or limit, everything in this way will be a sacrament. All the parables and similitudes in Scripture will be so many sacraments. Nay, even theft will be a sacrament, seeing it is written, quote, The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, unquote. First Thessalonians 5, verse 2 Who can tolerate the ignorant cruelty of these sophists? I admit, indeed, that whenever we see a vine, the best thing is to call to mind what our Savior says, quote, I am the true vine, and to my father is the husbandman, unquote. Quote, I am the vine, ye are the branches, unquote. John 15, verses 1 and 5 And whenever we meet a shepherd with his flock, it is good also to remember, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. John 5, verse 14. But any man who would class such similitudes as sacraments should be sent to bed Section 35. They adduce the words of Paul by which they say that the name of a sacrament is given to marriage. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, that I speak concerning Christ and the church. Unquote. Ephesians 5, verses 28 and 32. To treat scripture thus is to confound heaven and earth. Paul, in order to show husbands how they ought to love their wives, sets Christ before them as an example, as he shed his bowels of affection for the church, which he has espoused to himself, so he would have everyone to feel affected toward his wife. Then he adds, quote, he that loveth his wife, loveth himself, unquote, quote, even as the Lord the church, unquote. Moreover, to show how Christ loved the church as himself, nay, how he made himself one with his spouse, the church. He applies to her what Moses relates that Adam said of himself. For after Eve was brought into his presence, knowing that she had been formed out of his side, he exclaimed, quote, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, unquote. Genesis 2, verse 23. That all this was spiritually fulfilled in Christ and in us, Paul declares when he says that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, and so one flesh with him at length he breaks out into the exclamation quote, this is a great mystery unquote, and lest anyone should be misled by the ambiguity he says that he is not speaking of the connection between husband and wife but of the spiritual marriage of Christ and the church and truly it is a great mystery that Christ allowed a rib to be taken from himself of which we might be formed that is, that when he was strong he was pleased to become weak that we might be strengthened by his strength and should no longer live ourselves, but he live in us. Colossians 2, verse 20 Section 36 The thing which misled them was the term, sacrament, but was it right that the whole church should be punished for the ignorance of these men? Paul called it a misery. When the Latin interpreter might have abandoned this mode of expression as uncommon to Latin ears, or converted it into, quote, secret, unquote, he preferred calling it sacramentum, but in no other sense than the Greek term, U, Upsilon, Sigma, Tau, Ada, Rho, Iota, Omicron, Nu, Mysterion, was used by Paul. Let them go now and clamor against skill and languages, their ignorance of which leads them most shamefully astray in a matter easy and obvious to everyone. But why did they so strongly urge the term sacrament in this one passage and in others pass it by with neglect, or both in the first epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verses 9 and 16 and also in the epistle to the ephesians it is used by the vulgate interpreter and in every instance for mystery let us however pardon them this lapses though liars ought to have good memories marriage being thus recommended by the title of the sacrament can it be anything but vertiginous levity afterwards to call it uncleanness and pollution and carnal defilement how absurd is it to debar priests from a sacrament as they say that they debar not from a sacrament but from carnal connection they will not thus escape me. They say that this connection is part of the sacrament and thereby figures the union which we have with Christ in conformity of nature, inasmuch as it is by this connection that husband and wife become one flesh, although some have here found two sacraments, the one of God and the soul, and bridegroom and the bride, another of Christ and the church, and husband and wife. Be this as it may, this connection is a sacrament from which no Christian can lawfully be debarred, unless indeed the sacraments of Christians accord so ill that they cannot stand together. There is also another absurdity in these dogmas. They affirm that in a sacrament the gift of the Holy Spirit is conferred. This connection they hold to be a sacrament, and yet they deny that in it the Holy Spirit is ever present. Section 37. And, that they might not delude the Church in this matter merely, what a long series of errors, lies, frauds, and iniquities have they appended to one error, so that you may say they sought nothing but a hiding place for abominations when they converted marriage into a sacrament, when once they obtained this, they appropriated to themselves the cognizance of conjugal causes, as the thing was spiritual, it was not to be intermeddled with by profane judges." Then they enacted laws by which they confirmed their tyranny, laws partly impious toward God, partly fraught with injustice toward men, such as that marriages contracted between minors without the consent of their parents should be valid, that no lawful marriages can be contracted between relations within the seventh degree, and that such marriages, if contracted, should be dissolved. Moreover, they frame degrees of kindred contrary to the laws of all nations, and even the polity of Moses, and enact that a husband who has repudiated an adulteress may not marry again, that spiritual kindred cannot be joined in marriage, that marriage cannot be celebrated from the to the Octus of Easter, three weeks before the Nativity of John, nor from Advent to Epiphany, and innumerable others, which it were too tedious to mention. We must now get out of their mire, in which our discourse has stuck longer than our inclination. Methinks, however, that much has been gained if I have in some measure deprived these asses of their lion's skin. Chapter 20. Of Civil Government. There are thirty-two sections. Section 1. Having shown above that there is a twofold government in man, and having fully considered the one which, placed in the soul or inward man, relates to eternal life, We are here called to say something of the other, which pertains only to civil institutions and the external regulation of manners. For, although this subject seems from its nature to be unconnected with the spiritual doctrine of faith which I have undertaken to treat, it will appear, as we proceed, that I have properly connected them, nay, that I am under the necessity of doing so, especially while, on the one hand, frantic and barbarous men are furiously endeavoring to overturn the order established by God, and, on the other, the flatterers of princes extolling their power without measure, hesitate not to oppose it to the government of God. Thus we meet both extremes, the purity of the faith will perish. We may add that it in no small degree concerns us to know how kindly God has here consulted for the human race, that pious zeal may the more strongly urge us to testify our gratitude. And first, before entering on the subject itself, it is necessary to attend to the distinction which we formerly laid down. See Book 3, Chapter 19, Section 16, above, and Chapter 10. Lest, as often happens to many, we imprudently confound these two things, the nature of which is altogether different. For some, on hearing that liberty is promised in the Gospel, a liberty which acknowledges no king and no magistrate among men, but looks to Christ alone, Think that they can receive no benefit from their liberty so long as they see any power placed over them. Accordingly, they think that nothing will be safe until the whole world is changed into a new form, when there will be neither courts, nor laws, nor magistrates, nor anything of the kind to interfere, as they suppose, with their liberty. But he who knows to distinguish between the body and the soul, between the present fleeting life and that which is future and eternal, will have no difficulty in understanding that the spiritual kingdom of Christ and civil government are things very widely separated. Saying, therefore, it is a Jewish vanity to seek and include the kingdom of Christ under the elements of this world, let us, considering as Scripture clearly teaches, that the blessings which we derive from Christ are spiritual, remember to confine the liberty which is promised and offered to us in Him within its proper limits. For why is it? That the very same apostle who bids us quote, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not again entangled with the yoke of bondage, unquote. Galatians 5, verse 1, in another passage forbids slaves to be solicitous about their state, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, unless it be that spiritual liberty is perfectly compatible with civil servitude. In this sense, the following passages are to be understood quote, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. Galatians 3, verse 28. Again, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3, verse 11. It is thus intimated that it matters not what your condition is among men, nor under what laws you live, since in them the kingdom of Christ does not at all consist. Section 2. Still, the distinction does not go so far as to justify us in supposing that the whole scheme of civil government is matter of pollution with which Christian men have nothing to do. Fanatics, indeed, delighting in unbridled license, insist and vociferate that, after we are dead by Christ, to the elements of the world, and being translated into the kingdom of God, sit among the celestials. It is unworthy of us and far beneath our dignity to be occupied with those profane and impure cares which relate to matters alien from a Christian man. To what end, they say, are laws without courts and tribunals? But what has a Christian man to do with courts? Nay, if it is unlawful to kill, what have we to do with laws and courts? But as we lately taught that that kind of government is distinct from the spiritual and internal kingdom of Christ, so we ought to know that they are not adverse to each other. The former in some measure begins the heavenly kingdom in us, even now upon earth, and in this mortal and evanescent life commences immortal and incorruptible blessedness, while for the latter it is a sign so long as we live among men to foster and maintain the external worship of God, to defend sound doctrine and the condition of the Church, to adapt our conduct to human society, To form our manners to civil justice, to conciliate us to each other, to cherish common peace and tranquility. All these I confess to be superfluous, if the kingdom of God, as it now exists within us, extinguishes the present life. But if it is the will of God, that while we aspire to true piety, we are pilgrims upon the earth, and if such pilgrimage stands in need of such aids, those who take them away from man rob him of his humanity." As to their allegation that there ought to be such perfection in the church of God, that her guidance should suffice for law, they stupidly imagine her to be such as she never can be found in the community of men. For while the insolence of the wicked is so great, and their iniquity so stubborn, that it can scarcely be curbed by any severity of law, what do we expect would be done by those whom force can scarcely repress from doing ill, were they to see perfect impunity for their wickedness? Section 3 but we shall have a fitter opportunity of speaking of the use of civil government. All we wish to be understood at present is that it is perfect barbarism to think of exterminating it, its use among men being not less than that of bread and water, light and air, while its dignity is much more excellent. Its object is not merely, like those things, to enable men to breathe, eat, drink, and be warmed, though it certainly includes all these, while it enables them to live together. This, I say, is not its only object, but it is that no idolatry, no blasphemy against the name of God, no calumnies against His truth, nor other offenses to religion, break out and be disseminated among the people. That the public quiet be not disturbed, that every man's property be kept secure, that men may carry on innocent commerce with each other, that honesty and modesty be cultivated, in short that a public form of religion may exist among Christians and humanity among men. lest no one be surprised that I now attribute the task of constituting religion a right to human polity, though I seem above to have placed it beyond the will of man, since I no more than formally allow men at pleasure to enact laws concerning religion and the worship of God, when I approve of civil order which is directed to this end, viz., to prevent the true religion which is contained in the law of God from being with impunity openly violated and polluted by public blasphemy but the reader by the help of a perspicuous arrangement will better understand what view is to be taken of the whole order of civil government if we treat of each of its parts separately now these are three the magistrate who is president and guardian of the laws, the laws according to which he governs and the people who are governed by the laws and obey the magistrate Let us consider, then, first, what is the function of the magistrate? Is it a lawful calling approved by God? What is the nature of his duty? What is the extent of his power? Secondly, what are the laws by which Christian polity is to be regulated? And lastly, what is the use of laws as regards the people? And what obedience is due to the magistrate? Section 4. With regard to the function of magistrates, the Lord has not only declared that he approves and is pleased with it, but, moreover, has strongly recommended it to us by the very honorable titles which he has conferred upon it, to mention a few. When those who bear the office of magistrate are called gods, let no one suppose that there is little weight in that appellation. It is thereby intimated that they have a commission from God, that they are invested with divine authority, and, in fact, represent the person of God as who substitutes they in a manner act. This is not equivalent of mine." that is, the interpretation of Christ. Quote, Scripture, unquote, says he, Quote, Calls them gods, to whom the word of God came, unquote. What is this, but that the business was committed to them by God, to serve him in their office, and, as Moses and Jehoshaphat said to the judges whom they were appointing over each of the cities of Judah, to exercise judgment, not for man, but for God. To the same effect, wisdom affirms by the mouth of Solomon, quote, by me kings reign, and princes decree justice, by me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth, Proverbs 8, verses 15 and 16. For it is just as if it had been said, that it is not only to human perverseness that supreme power on earth is lodged in kings and other governors, but by divine providence and the holy decree of him to whom it has seemed good, so to govern the affairs of men since he is present, and also presides in enacting laws and exercising judicial equity. This Paul also plainly teaches when he enumerates offices of rule among the gifts of God, which, distributed variously according to the measure of grace, ought to be employed by the servants of Christ for the edification of the church. Romans 7 verse 8 in that place, however, he is properly speaking of the Senate of grave men who were appointed in the primitive church to take charge of public discipline. This office in the epistle to the Corinthians he calls, Greek word, Kappa, Upsilon, Beta, Epsilon, Rho, Nu, Eta, Sigma, Epsilon, Iota, Sigma, Cougar, Nessis, Governments, First Corinthians 12, verse 28 still as we see that civil power has the same end in view there can be no doubt that he is recommending every kind of just government he speaks much more clearly when he comes to a proper discussion of the subject for he says that quote there is no power but of God the powers that be are ordained of God unquote that rulers are the ministers of God quote not a terror to good works but to the evil unquote Romans 13 verses 1 and 3 to this, we may add the examples of saints, some of whom held the offices of kings, as David, Josiah, and Hezekiah, others of governors, as Joseph and Daniel, others of civil magistrates among a free people, as Moses, Joshua, and the judges. Their functions were expressly approved by the Lord. Wherefore no man can doubt that civil authority is, in the sight of God, not only sacred and lawful, but the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all stations in mortal life. Section 5 Those who are desirous to introduce anarchy object that, though anciently kings and judges presided over a rude people, yet that, in the present day, the servile mode of governing does not at all accord with the perfection which Christ brought with his gospel. Herein they betray not only their ignorance their devilish pride, arrogating to themselves the perfection of which not even a hundredth part is seen in them. But be they what they may, the refutation is easy. Or when David says, quote, Be wise, now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Unquote. Quote, Kiss the sun, lest ye be angry. Unquote. Psalm 2, verses 10 and 12. He does not order them to lay aside their authority and return to private life. to make the power with which they are invested subject to Christ, that he may rule over them. In like manner, when Isaiah predicts of the church, "Kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers, unquote. Isaiah 49, verse 23. He does not bid them abdicate their authority. He rather gives them the honorable appellation of patrons of the pious worshipers of God, for the prophecy refers to the advent of Christ. I intentionally omit very many passages which occur throughout Scripture, and especially in the Psalms in which the due authority of all rulers is asserted. The most celebrated passage of all is that in which Paul, admonishing Timothy, that prayers are to be offered up in the public assembly for kings, subjoins the reason, quote, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. In these words he recommends the condition of the Church to their protection and guardianship. Section 6. This consideration ought to be constantly present to the minds of magistrates, since it is fitted to furnish a strong stimulus to the discharge of duty, and also afford singular consolation, smoothing the difficulties of their office, which are certainly numerous and weighty. What zeal for integrity, prudence, meekness, continence, and innocence ought to sway those who know that they have been appointed ministers of the divine justice? How will they dare to admit iniquity to their tribunal when they are told that it is the throne of the living God? How will they venture to pronounce an unjust sentence with that mouth which they understand to be an ordained organ of divine truth? With what conscience will they subscribe impious decrees with that hand which they know has been appointed to write the acts of God? In a word, if they remember that they are the vice of God, it behoves them to watch with all care, diligence, and industry, that they may in themselves exhibit a kind of image of the divine providence, guardianship, goodness, benevolence, and justice and let them constantly keep the additional thought in view, that if a curse is pronounced on him that, quote, doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, unquote, a much heavier curse must lie on him who deals deceitfully in a righteous calling. Therefore, when Moses and Jehoshaphat would urge their judges to the discharge of duty, they had nothing by which they could more powerfully stimulate their minds than the consideration to which we have already referred, quote, Take heed what ye do. For ye judge not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Unquote. 2 Chronicles 19, verses 6 and 7. Compared with Deuteronomy 1, verse 16, etc. And in another passage it is said, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Unquote. Psalm 82, verse 1, and Isaiah 3, verse 14, that they may be animated to duty when they hear that they are the ambassadors of God, to whom they must one day render an account of the providence committed to them. This admonition ought justly to have the greatest effect upon them, for if they sin in any respect, not only is injury done to the man whom they wickedly torment, but they also insult God himself, whose sacred tribunals they pollute. On the other hand, they have an admirable source of comfort when they reflect that they are not engaged in profane occupations, unbefitting a servant of God, but in a most sacred office, inasmuch as they are the ambassadors of God. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www. Canada T6L3T5 If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list so once you've sent us your email address you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied your email information will be kept confidential and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at SWRB at SWRB.com with the word remove in the subject line Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26:3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.